It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. This is the greatest item of all time. But first, shout out to my homies out there. We're going to be talking rap. And the number one rapper in the world right now, Ben Shapiro. Yes, that's right. Conservative commentator, Daily Wire guy, podcaster, Orthodox Jew, brilliant guy, little on the nebbishy side. He's got a rap song. And that rap song called Facts is number one on iTunes. (laughs) This is just hysterical. I wish I could sort of cue up the music like a real DJ. He uh, collaborates with Canadian rap artist Tom McDonald. And as you might have surmised, uh, the lyrics are uh, a little bit on the right side of the political spectrum. Look at the facts. Look at the stats. I've got my facts. My money like Lizzo. My pockets are fat. Ooh. Uh, Nikki takes some notes. I just did this for fun. All my people download this. Let's get a billboard number one. And of course, he's promoting the hell out of it, which I would do too. Officially the top song in the world. Rap God status unlocked. (laughs) All right, he's getting a little carried away. And uh, other lyrics, uh, this is the first verse uh, sung by McDonald. They call me offensive, controversial. There's only two genders, boys and girls. They claim that I'm racist. Yeah, all right, I'm not ashamed because I'm white. If every Caucasian's a bigot, I guess every Muslim's a terrorist. Every liberal is right. I'm not as good at it. I would be the first to admit. Um, And uh, Ben thanks God, McDonald, and my parents who paid for 15 years of classical violin lessons so I could become the number one rapper in America. All right. Um, just up the road here from D.C. in Baltimore, the Orioles have been sold. A guy who is a ultra-wealthy hedge fund dude and philanthropist, David Rubenstein, very well known uh, in this area, and his Carlisle group um, is in the process of buying the Orioles. And um, I guess he's been involved with the team, buying it from the Angelos family. Oh, and one of the minority partners is Cal Ripken, you know, the legendary Cal Ripken, who with the consecutive game played record that will never be broken. So that's the sports news. Now here's the Elon Musk news. I got to either have Elon Musk or Taylor Swift every day. I think today there's nothing from Taylor, but it's early in the podcast. We'll see. So you ever wonder what, how much money Elon Musk has made? How much has he paid from Tesla? $56 billion. Now I'm making this up. I got a Washington Post story here to back me up. That is his pay package. And the reason it is in the news is that a Delaware judge tossed it out. Um, And, of course, this is the 
gentleman who also owns X, who also owns SpaceX, who also owns just a good chunk of corporate America. And Tesla, I think, was, you know, what made him famous. So legal experts say that Musk will probably have to return some of the stock options he got when he worked out this pay package back in 2018. Uh, The chancellor in the court writing, uh, the plan is the largest potential compensation opportunity ever observed in public markets by multiple orders of magnitude. For instance, over 33 times larger than the plan's closest comparison, which was, drumroll, Elon Musk's prior compensation plan. Now, I'll leave it to others to debate whether he's worth it, but I mean, eye-popping doesn't really describe it. Story number one. Now, I've covered many, many, too many probably, congressional hearings in my time, and a lot of them are really boring, or there might be, you know, two minutes of excitement, and the rest is a bunch of lawmakers, both parties do this, you know, giving speeches, berating witnesses, or just repeating things that have already been said, in the first hour, they do it in the second hour, and they do it again in the third hour, because everybody's got to have the chance to talk. But this hearing yesterday before the Senate Judiciary on safety for children online was very different. Mark Zuckerberg, the chief executive of Meta, was there. So was the CEO of X, Linda Yaccarino, it seemed very poised to me. I'd never seen her speak. Uh, Snapchat and other major social media giants. And it got pretty heated. Lindsey Graham saying these companies have blood on your hands. And Marsha Blackburn got into it with Zuck. And she was saying that Facebook and Instagram, which Zuckerberg controls, has become the premier sex trafficking platform, which Zuckerberg said was ridiculous. Uh, TikTok was there, and there were a lot of questions about its Chinese ownership, um, as well as the main focus of the hearing. You know, we're talking here about, I mean, it is so outrageous. It's been going on for so many years now where particularly young teenage girls or tweens, you know, get depressed, have body uh, image problems, in some extreme cases commit suicide because of what they see. Everybody looks beautiful and tan and thin, right? As well as, you know, access to images that no child should be seeing. And, you know, so the companies were conciliatory. Oh, yes, we've been working on this for years. We're going to do better. But when the questioner was Republican Senator Josh Hawley, he asked Zuckerberg, what would you say to the people who are in the room? And in the room were a bunch of parents holding up pictures of their children. The implication being that those were kids who were no longer with us or had had other problems. And what would you say to these people in the room they all stood up and they were holding up the, the pictures. 
And what Zuckerberg did is he turned around from facing the senators to facing the audience in that hearing room. And he said, I'm sorry for everything you all have been through. No one should go through the things that your families have suffered. And he said that his company's working hard to make sure that no one else has to go through that kind of suffering. It was a moment. It was a viral moment. And it shows, I guess, the maturing of Mark Zuckerberg because, you know, he used to come off, most of the time he was seen in a hoodie, as a, you know, young, wealthy, but not exactly diplomatic mogul. And he learned enough that he realized he looked bad, his company looked bad, and then an apology was called for. So also at the hearing, you had Evan Spiegel. He's the CEO of Snap, owner of Snapchat. He apologized to parents whose kids have died from fentanyl overdoses after purchasing drugs on Snapchat. I'm so sorry that we have not been able to prevent these tragedies, he said, and saying the company blocks search terms related to drugs. Now, look, if people are able to buy this garbage on Snap or through Snap, that's just an unbelievable outrage. On the other hand, if Snap didn't exist, you would think maybe they would find other ways uh, to do that. And of course, that's reckless and they have to take some responsibility. But the grown-ups who run these companies and are paid lots and lots and lots of money, they're supposed to be in charge. They're supposed to be improving things. And there's been no legislation that has gone through Congress on this or related stuff. You know, because of the usual, first of all, these are powerful companies with lots of lobbyists. And second of all, because lawmakers can't agree on anything. Why would we expect that they would agree on this? So to some extent, this is theater, it's venting. I sure would like to see these companies do a better job, given just their huge impact on our world, on our culture, on our economy. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Story number two, I find kind of fascinating, involves Samantha Power. Now, Samantha Power, before she got into politics, which was when she worked for Barack Obama's 2008 campaign and went on to serve in the Obama administration at the moment, she is the head of AID, the Agency for International Development. She was really well known, at least in some circles, as a human rights advocate who had written books on the subject and, you know, had a huge heart in terms of doing real dogged reporting around the world about poverty, human rights violations, 
She was an expert in particular on genocide. Well, yesterday, there was a meeting at AID, or the staff meeting, and one of her employees stood up, employee by the name of, can't pronounce her first name, Agnieszka Sykes, global health specialist, who apparently left AID last week. You wrote a book on genocide and you're still working for the administration. You should resign and speak out, the staffer said. I see. She interrupted Samantha Power's speech. And she invoked uh, Power's book, A Problem from Hell. That won the Pulitzer Prize for examining and condemning, at the time, U.S. inaction on various atrocities, says the Washington Post, from Armenia to Rwanda, spanning several presidential administrations. But now, I think this is kind of a symbolic of, you know, some at AID, certainly some at the State Department under Biden, are outraged by all the suffering going on in Gaza. So Samantha Power thanked her for her comments. She said the situation in Gaza was devastating, that more than 25,000 civilians have been killed. Um, Usually the U.S. doesn't cite that figure because it doesn't distinguish between Hamas fighters and Palestinian civilians. Power going on to say not enough resources are getting in. She said U.S. negotiators are trying to broker a humanitarian pause again, that would allow more aid to move into the uh, Gaza Strip in exchange for Hamas's release of hostages. But she also emphasized the horror, and indeed it was an absolutely unspeakable horror, of the Hamas attack on October 7th that killed 1,200 Israelis. Human life is sacred, she said. So I guess it's difficult if humanitarian disaster is something that you've been so eloquent in speaking about, to watch the undeniable human suffering in Gaza, lots and lots and lots of innocent Palestinian families, but it is their terrorist organization government that started this war. And by the way, it's the Israelis, but you know, with support from the U.S., I wouldn't let us completely off the hook, who are conducting the bombings and the operations and also finding Hamas leaders in hospitals, in schools, or right next to them, making it difficult. Increasing their own Palestinian casualties by the way in which they embed with the population. And so it's a difficult situation all the way around. On a related note, the EU, European Union leaders, reaching an agreement yesterday for a 50 billion euro fund for Ukraine, even getting Viktor Orban of Hungary on board. He had been a primary obstacle. 50 billion euros, roughly equivalent to $50 billion, give or take a few billion. Um... This locks in steadfast, long-term, predictable funding 
says the president of the European Council. EU is taking leadership and responsibility in support for Ukraine. We know what is at stake. That's great. I love the fact that European countries are stepping up and opening their coffers and their wallets. But what makes me cringe a little bit is this is all the more urgent, all the more of a crisis, because our Congress is so dysfunctional that we have not been able to provide any aid to Ukraine since the end of last year. Usually the U.S. takes the leadership role in something like this. And, you know, I know many Republicans are now sort of wary and they wonder if the money is being well spent and all that. But Vladimir Putin cannot be allowed to crush a sovereign country just on his whim, and he won't stop there. And so with the U.S. aid running dry, the Europeans have stepped up. How much longer? Because of these border negotiations, because of politics, are we not going to be able to provide certainly military aid to Israel, which has broad support in this country, and military aid to Ukraine, which has less broad support, but still has Republican support, including from Mitch McConnell. It just tears me up that we can't get something done. You know, you can argue about safeguards and, you know, anti-corruption provisions and so forth. Fine. But how about getting it done? That's your job. Okay, moving on to some politics in story three. A new poll getting a lot of attention. Quinnipiac University, widely respected polling operation. President Biden opening up a sizable lead over Donald Trump. So this is a hypothetical, of course, but it does look likely that that's the matchup. When the poll was done in December, it was too close to call. But now you have... It was 47-46, so that's, you know, a statistical tie. But in, in the poll just out, Democrats support Joe Biden, 96 to 2. Hardly a surprise there. Independents support Joe Biden, 52 to 40. Independents, I think, is where the bowl game is won or lost. And Republicans support Trump 91 to 7. There's also a really noticeable gender gap. Women supporting Joe Biden, 58 to 36 percent. All these numbers are up for Biden. Men supporting Trump, 51 to 41 percent. So I guess the gender gap is offset. And by the way, they also ran the hypothetical Nikki Haley versus Joe Biden, and she beats him in this Quinnipiac poll. But if Biden has moved up, if this poll is not an outlier, and Biden has moved up to a 12-point lead among independents, that is contrary to a lot of the polls we'd be seeing, especially, remember, this whole election is going to be decided by probably six states. In these battleground states, Trump's margin varies, but he beats Biden even in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, you know, which used to be true blue Democratic Rust Belt country. 
And so you have to take those numbers, at least with some grains of salt, because how does it translate into the Electoral College? Remember, Biden won the election in 2020 by seven to eight million votes. But it's tighter in the Electoral College. And if Biden can't win a state, if he can't win Pennsylvania, which is, you know, Scranton Joe, right next to Delaware, and he can't win Michigan, I say the election's over. But the Q poll, you know, it gets one of these shock poll headlines in Drudge because it goes against what we've been seeing. Now, uh, in the liberal Huffington Post, it's a piece that begins all the witnesses Republicans called in for depositions as part of their impeachment inquiry against the president have said they know of no corruption on Biden's part. Eric Schwerin, Biden family friend who partnered with the president's son Hunter in business and did bookkeeping for the father, told lawmakers, this is on Tuesday, that he was not aware of Joe Biden benefiting financially from his son's work. Quote, given my aware of his finances and the explicit directions he gave to his financial advisors, the allegation that he would engage in any improper conduct to benefit himself or his family is preposterous to me, Schwerin said in his opening statement for the Hunter Biden Associates, telling lawmakers in January they never witnessed any improper behavior by the president nor efforts by his son to entangle him in a foreign business deal. Now, the chairman, Jim Comer, continues to try to prove his accusations. And there's a lot more to go here. But so far, not even no smoking gun, but no gun. Or even just smoke. (laughs) Uh, Top Democrat on the panel, Jamie Raskin, telling HuffPost, we have a consistent pattern of witnesses coming in and telling us that Joe Biden just was not involved in any of the business affairs that the Republicans are talking about. But Comer says that Schwerin actually did reveal something uh, negative, that when he was in business with Hunter Biden, he provided booking services to Joe, who was then vice president, for free. I mean, most people don't get that, right? So that's noteworthy. But if they don't get anything more than that, what are they going to do with this House impeachment inquiry? Are they going to go ahead anyway? They thought when they got to subpoena all these witnesses with Republicans in control that that would lead them to some serious corruption allegations. Meanwhile, RFK Jr., uh, reading this in The Hill, stepping up his strategy to get on battleground ballots as he flirts with the idea of running on the Libertarian Party ticket. So remember, started out as a Democrat, obviously. He comes from probably the most famous Democratic family in America. Then quit the Democratic primary and says he's running as an independent. But the problem with running as an independent is it's not easy to get on the ballots in all 50 states. The Libertarian Party would have the infrastructure to let him do that. And he could get on ballot in in many of these important swing states. So a Democratic strategist is quoted here as saying, hijacking... Libertarian Party ballot line won't change his odds of winning the presidency, which he has no chance at, but it does increase the odds that he could play spoiler and hand the keys to the White House back to Trump. Uh, That's a real serious possibility. 
Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I want to move on to number four. Speaking of impeachment, we spoke yesterday, hope you were there, um, to talk about the articles of impeachment approved by a House committee against Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary. And I even found some conservatives on TV and elsewhere saying, well, there's no point in impeaching Mayorkas, you know, because he's carrying out Joe Biden's policies. So here's a column by Ruth Marcus, liberal Washington Post writer, who's also a lawyer. She says these articles make a mockery of the solemn congressional power to remove officials for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Let's look at the last cabinet member, actually the only cabinet secretary ever impeached, guy's name, William Belknap. He was Secretary of War under Ulysses Grant. And back in 1876, so far back you have to go, he was accused of selling the right to operate a military trading post in the Oklahoma Territory. Belknap resigned, but the House impeached him anyway, charging him with basically prostituting his high office to his lust for private gain. Pretty colorful way of putting it. And then he wasn't convicted in the Senate. Probably in part, you know, I'm not an expert on this case, because uh, he was already out of office. But that's pretty bad what he did. So, here's a law professor who told the committee that the requirement for impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors is that they must be of extraordinary serious and ought to be of a type that corrupts or subverts governmental processes or the constitutional order. Following the policy directives of one's elected superior in pursuit of that superior's policy aims is simply not an impeachable abuse of power. I mean, look, we all know how the cabinet works. No matter who's president, they serve at the pleasure of the president. They have to do what the president tells them in terms of broad policy. If they don't, I mean, the president doesn't need a reason. He can fire somebody like that. Even if he decides it's the person's not effective. He doesn't like him or thought he was rude, whatever. You serve at the pleasure of the president. So Ruth Marcus goes on to say in this piece that the framers actually considered a lower standard at the famous 1787 Constitutional Convention. When Virginia Delegate George Mason, you've heard of him, there's now a university named after him in Virginia, suggested that impeachable offenses be restricted to treason, bribery, or maladministration, James Madison, no less a figure than James Madison, pushed back. So vague a term will be equivalent to tenure during the pleasure of the Senate. So, GW law professor Jonathan Turley, who often appears on Fox News, he says, absent some new evidence, I cannot see the limiting principle that will allow the House to impeach Mayorkas without potentially making any policy disagreement with a cabinet member a high crime and misdemeanor. He wrote this in the Daily Beast. That is a slippery slope we would be wise to avoid.
And, you know, you can rip the hell out of Mayorkas because the border's a mess and he's the presiding officer under the president. But impeach him? None of this is to suggest there isn't a problem at the border. Says Ruth, there is the result of years of congressional failure to tackle the difficult trade-offs presented by the immigration debate, including how to deal with those already in the country. So she's on the liberal side. Uh, Jonathan Turley leans right. I just wonder where this goes. Now, story number five is one small element, a column I have today. We'll get to that in a moment. If you're familiar with the news site called The Messenger, well, it's toast. The people who run it even took down all the stories so quickly that reporters, not to mention editors and others, who've lost their jobs, uh, can't, couldn't even like copy their stories, which maybe in recent weeks with the, all the rumblings about a financial meltdown there. Maybe they already did. Now, The Messenger was started, is owned by Jimmy Finkelstein, who I've known for a long time. I knew him when he bought The Hill. And he had grand visions for this thing. The idea was that it would be neutral, politically neutral, not leaning left or right, despite the fact that Finkelstein and his wife were friendly with the Trumps when they were in office. Shutting down effectively. Immediately, I should say. Effective immediately. And here's what Jimmy says in a note to the staff. This is truly the last thing I wanted, and I am deeply sorry. Okay. Took personal responsibility. This closed after less than a year. You know, there was a lot of publicity and media buildup for this site because it went out and hired 300 people, journalists from Politico, Reuters, NBC, AP. This is according to a New York Times writer, but everyone's covering it. And generous salaries were offered. And so people who left thought, you know, they could have a good future there. Finkelstein had said he was going to hire 550 journalists, only hired 50, and he burned through $50 million. Um, Richard Beckman, veteran magazine journalist who uh, was the president of The Messenger. I mean, if you hire 550 journalists, I mean, you're up there with most major newspapers. But the money quickly vanished. The initial 50, the messenger lost about $38 million, generated only $3 million. You know, much as I hate to say it, I don't think there's a huge market right now for news that is right down the middle. I mean... I see myself as a down-the-middle guy, but I didn't spend $50 million starting a website, which mostly was an aggregation website. I mean, there was some original reporting, great. But basically, the stories you saw there were 
rewrites of stories that have been everywhere else. That was the HuffPost model on the liberal side. Finkelstein said, we're going to do it and be balanced. But as soon as it started, there were problems. The politics editor, Greg Birnbaum, quit after clashing with the chief growth officer, a guy who had helped boost the Hill's online traffic. And the employees there, according to many accounts, just got tired of having to sort of churn out mass-producing these stories based on original reporting by the competition. There were some layoffs. Uh, Jimmy made a last-ditch effort to raise enough money to keep it going. Said he'd raised about $10 million. There was a conservative group that wanted to buy it, but instead it's just shut down. And part of the business model was that Facebook would provide a lot of links. Well, I'm sure Finkelstein knows this. Facebook has moved further and further away from linking to news, even if you have a lot of click, clickable headlines. And, a lot of, and some of the journalists there, and I feel awful that so many people have suddenly lost their jobs in such a short period of time, um, they were internally critical or privately critical of a lot of clickbait headlines. So the guy Birnbaum, and this is in the Washington Post version of the story, he said he had left because of the messenger's rapacious and blind, desperate chasing of traffic by the nonstop gerbil wheel rewriting story after story that has first appeared in other media outlets in the hope that something, anything will go viral. A disappointment to many of the outstanding quality journalists at The Messenger, he says, who are trying to focus on meaningful, original, and distinctive reporting. And the current president, who didn't find out about this, the whole staff didn't find out about this, um, until it was broken by the New York Times yesterday. And so they all went on Slack to, you know, express shock and commiseration. But suddenly they were forcibly kicked off their Slack accounts. One staffer telling the Washington Post, it does feel like we're the orchestra of the Titanic as editors assign us stories and are asking for quick turnarounds. In other words, they had to work up until the very last day, even as everybody thought this ship was sinking. So that's it for The Messenger. And the column I referred to, you know, is the most pessimistic column I have ever written about the media, talking about the over 20% layoffs at the Los Angeles Times, uh, quoting pieces in Politico and The Atlantic about the reasons behind this. And look, we've all known for 20 years that at least the print business model was broken. That the internet ate its lunch. But a lot of this, in my view, has to take has to do with the loss of credibility. You have angry red America, angry blue America, angry at each other, and angry at the media. Far more on the right. Don't trust the media, but those numbers are also creeping up during the Biden administration. On the left. And finally, I say, you know, look, there are exceptions. The New York Times 
is healthy. The Wall Street Journal is healthy. The Boston Globe is doing pretty well under a local owner. Mostly newspapers, they're owned now by really wealthy guys. That's the case at the LA Times. That's the case at the Washington Post with just Bezos. And hedge funds, which tend to strip mine them, thinking, oh, well, we'll make some money by cutting the staff, except they're kind of contributing to the death spiral. Meanwhile, the audience for cable news networks growing older. Fox News seems to be in a strong position because its ratings in prime time are larger than CNN and MSNBC combined. But Fox and everybody else is looking into, has launched or weighing streaming, pay sites, as more and more young people get their news or cut the cord, as is said. And look, I don't think journalism is going out of business, but I think this is the worst period I've ever seen. Even though the economy is relatively good. And my bottom line is this. You know, new forms will emerge. Three years ago, whoever thought podcasting would be the next big thing. That's why I leaped at it. Not that I get an extra dime out of it. But a whole lot of millions of people out there, they'll pay monthly fees for Netflix, for Amazon Prime, for Apple TV, for Hulu, Max, you name it. But they won't pay for news. And if news outlets can't figure out a way to convince the public that their product is worth buying, well, ultimately, they bear the blame. Wish I had a more optimistic note to close on, but I am very happy uh, that you've stayed this long. Often the last item is something that I, I leave extra time for because I want to pontificate and analyze and just plain speak my mind. Thanks for being along on this ride today. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.